Well, if you have your Bibles with you, you, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to finish up verse 11. We've spent, uh, we're in part 5 on unpacking the schemes of the devil. Thinking of how the devil wants to bring death and separation in every aspect of our lives. He wants to separate us from God. He wants to separate us from mankind in general. He wants to bring death to our physical bodies. And He wants to bring separation to the church. And that's what we'll focus on this morning. So, let's uh, begin in verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Father, I pray that Your Word would be powerful this morning. That You would, Your Spirit would work in our hearts. Father, that you would triumph through Your Word in our hearts. And that that Word would hit every single heart exactly the way You have meant for it to affect each and every one. Father, what I ask for cannot be done in the flesh, but must be a work of the Spirit. This is what we pray for, Father. In Christ's name, Amen. Have you ever wondered why the people who've been forgiven by pure grace, let's just get this in our mind. The people that have been forgiven by pure grace. That when they gather together, so often struggle to get along. So, people saved by pure grace, but when they gather together, struggle to get along. When you think of church, when you think of your life experience in church, is the thought that comes to your mind peace, unity, oneness? Or is the more normal thought when you think of the gathered saints Politics, infighting, bitterness, grudges, pain, jadedness, cynical spirit. Now, how and why is it true that probably the norm of what you've experienced in life is that relationships in church aren't necessarily easy. And in fact, the norm might seem that they're difficult. I believe Scripture gives us two fundamental answers as to why that is the case. And the first one is this, simply indwelling sin. Though saved, though filled with the Spirit of God, 
they're still indwelling sin, which means there's still selfishness, which means there's still degrees of pride, which means there's still degrees that we believe lies and suspicion of one another. So that's the simple, obvious answer, right? When the gathered saints gather together, who gathers together? Sinners who, yes, are saved by grace, but it's not the good people gathering together. It's actually the people who ought to have recognized, I'm not good. I need a Savior. I need everything He has to offer me in the here and now before Christ returns, which means I need my brothers and sisters in Christ. I need the preached Word. I need the gifts of the body. And so indwelling sin, I mean, Ephesians 4.22 reminds us of this. Where Paul says, we're to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life, now catch this, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Lying desires. He's telling the church to put it off because it can be put on. The old self, a believer can continue to give way to deceitful desires. And so he calls us to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. How are you going to see the deceitful desires if your mind isn't renewed in the Word? And to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So, indwelling sin is part of the reason. There needs to be a sermon on we need to watch out for Satan's schemes in the division of the body of Christ. The second answer is simply this. Spiritual warfare. This is target A. This is the fundamental target Satan has on this earth. He wants to strike where the authority of Jesus Christ dwells. Same reason. Why is it easy to read an article on the internet and it's hard to read this? Spiritual warfare. What world do you think you live in? There is no battle at all to keep you from reading just any random article, but to read the Word of God in the same way. The reason why relationships in church can be so hard is because what we've been looking at, Ephesians 6.12, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. The answer the Bible gives is not fundamentally because of them. He says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities and against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Satan will always seek division in the most opportunistic, calculated way that he can. That's why it's so important what we've been talking about. If you don't know who our enemy is, and you don't know his schemes and what he's trying to do, then you're not going to be very effective, or you're not going to be motivated to put on the whole armor of God. All of it. Where does Satan want to shoot his fiery darts or his missiles? Fiery darts. 
You know, we turn on the TV, we see fiery darts going, don't we? In, in warfare on this earth, we see missiles flying. Where does Satan want to land his missiles? Here's where. He wants to take out the weapon that can destroy him and his work. That's what he wants to do. It's like any other warfare. If i got an enemy and he's got weapons, and I can destroy his weapons, I sleep better at night. Right? He wants to land his missiles where Christ's weapons are. And obviously, the main weapon is the truth. His main weapon is lies. Lies. That's his main Mode of operation is deception. <laughs> so you take indwelling sin, deceitful desires that are inherent within human beings, and then you take a deceiver and you got gasoline and you got fire. And that's why he always seeks to look in at our own sin, our own weaknesses, add lies there, add lies there. But he wants to take out the truth of the gospel of peace. He hates peace. He hates unity. So his two fundamental targets he desires to hit seem to be, if he could only hit two places, I think here's where the missiles would land. I think he'd try to bring division in marriages because there's the family. Now, does he want to bring division in between children and parents? Sure. He's already talked about that. Does he want to bring division in the workplace? Sure. We're asking the question, fundamentally, where do the missiles want to land? In marriages and in the church. Here's why. Ephesians 5.31 Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. He hates the gospel, and marriages are meant to shine the gospel. So where do you think he wants to hit? If you're married, why is marriage so difficult? If you don't know it's difficult, you probably haven't seen into your own heart. Marriage is difficult. And the answer isn't fundamentally because who you marry. Because you don't fundamentally struggle against flesh and blood. And so often, Satan wins when you're convinced your enemy is your spouse. And when you're convinced that your fundamental enemy is your spouse, then the place where the gospel is supposed to shine forth becomes dim, and that's where he wants to hit. Marriage is hard. Do you know why it's hard? Marriage is hard because we have an enemy. Yes, it's because of indwelling sin. Sure. But we have an active enemy that wants to flare up any sin that remains. He's an opportunistic enemy. Let me, let, let me give you a fundamental uh, example of this. He is so practical. He, he's so, a lot of times we miss the rubber meets the road. But Satan understands how to practically attack us. So that in 1 Corinthians 7, this 
this passage that talks about intimacy, sexual intimacy in the marriage. Uh, Here's what Paul says. Paul says, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. All right, that's clear. It's not hard to interpret. It means where there's sexual desire, there shouldn't be deprivation of one another. One of the biblical counselors that I heard speak uh, said, you know, he always gets asked, how often intimacy? And he says, as often as every marriage can be different. As often as the other partner desires it. That's what the text says here. And here's his argument for the wife does not have authority over her body, uh, her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And so we get the command then, do not deprive one another, except perhaps by an agreement, so a two-way agreement, for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again. Why? So that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you believe that Satan wants to get to the practical intimacy in your life? He strikes you holistically as a marriage. Marriage is all about holding fast to one another and oneness. And it's relational oneness. He wants to separate you relationally and he wants to separate you physically and intimately. That's what he wants to do. And it's not fundamentally that he just likes to watch you suffer, though he does. It's that within your marriage, it either shines forth the gospel of Christ or doesn't shine as much. None of us shine the way it ought to. So if that's true, if in our marriages he'll attack, obviously he's going to attack the bride of Christ. Obviously he's going to attack the church. Obviously he's going to try to bring division within local churches. Now listen to Charles Spurgeon. In all of his experience in the church, let's listen to what he says in this regard. Satan always hates Christian fellowship. It is his policy to keep Christians apart. Anything which can divide saints from one another, he delights in. He attaches far more importance to godly intimacy with one another than we do. You catch that? Spurgeon says, Satan attaches far more more importance on our fellowship with one another than we do. He knows it's much more important than we do. That's why it's hard to come to church. It's easy to talk about fellowship with one another. It's hard to pull the trigger on it. Why is that? It's obvious. This is where we're strengthened. This is where we're built up. This is where hope and peace and forgiveness can happen. And he hates that. And then Spurgeon goes on to say, the strength that is spent in division is so much taken away from service. When there's division in the church, Service is takes the hit. Because it takes time to have division. It takes thought and much 
striving to have division. It's hard to go about and candidate for which side you support. That takes time. It takes a lot of gossip time. And then he says this. You know, I, I, this, this is humbling. He says, divisions in churches never begin with those full of love to the Savior. Churches have divisions, but divisions in the church never start with those who are full of the love of the Savior. Because the Savior loves unity, loves oneness. Now hang on here. Because those who are full of the love of the Lord can partake in it. It just doesn't start with them. He goes on to say, discord usually takes first hold upon the thorns. It is nurtured among the hypocrites and the base professors in the church. So he's saying it gets its start in the hypocrites that it are a part of the body, the base professors, those among the thorns. They, uh, they look like they're full of the love of God, but they're being choked out by the worries of the world. These could be wolves in sheep's clothing, hypocrites. But now listen to what he says. Discord usually first takes place among the thorns is nurtured among the hypocrites and base professors in the church and away it goes among the righteous blown by the winds of hell and no one knows where it may end so in his experience that's how it goes the righteous can jump in two feet fully in as the winds of hell begin to blow discord among the brethren. That's why Paul says in Acts 20, speaking to the Ephesian elders, he says, Be, pay careful attention to yourself and to all the flock. Elders need to pay careful attention to themselves. That's where he starts. To themselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which He obtained with His own blood. And then he says this. This is, this is sad, but it's true. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. So Paul says, there's one thing that I know will happen is from not, not from the world breaking down our doors with guns. That could happen. Probably won't happen, but it could happen. But Paul says, I know this will happen from among your own selves are going to come wolves speaking twisted things. And the goal is to gather disciples to follow them rather than have a heart of unifying the body together. And so we're told that this will happen. We need to be on guard to it. We need to see Satan's schemes. Brothers and sisters in Christ gather together, start suspiciously talking about one another. Is someone in the group going to open their eyes and see what's happening and realize what's at stake? Let's pray that the Lord gives us wisdom in this regard. Give us wisdom and mercy. And so we're going to look at how 
Satan seeks to separate us from our spiritual body. So, I went back and forth on whether uh, to preach the sermon this way, but I decided to do it. It's a bit of an experiment here. But I don't know if anyone has um, ever heard of C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters. I've talked about it a couple times. Uh, uh, but C.S. Lewis, what he does here is he writes a book, a fictional book about a very experienced demon writing letters to his novice nephew. And his nephew is given the job to make sure that this young man will be damned. And so, Screwtape is telling him, here's how you attack. Here's how you attack this young man and make sure that uh, he surely is damned. So, um, what I wanted to do this morning as a way of review in what uh, Paul has already told us about how everything Jesus is working in the book of Ephesians is all about unity. It's just crystal clear. I can't believe preaching through this. It's all about unity. And fundamentally, unifying us with God and unifying Jew and Gentile with one another. So it talks about the unity in the body of Christ. And so I want to imagine, I want to read some of these texts, go back and review them. And then what I did is I just fundamentally thought, what would the opposite of this text say? So one of the things the enemy could do if there was this relationship between a more experienced demon and a less experienced demon might be, go read Ephesians and everything Paul tells the Ephesian church to do, you say the opposite. Alright? So we're going to read a passage of Scripture, remember what Paul says, and then we're going to look at what the opposite might look like, what those lies might look like. And I'm telling you, after doing this, it was a little bit disheartening how normal the opposite feels. You know, that seems like that should be extreme, but it's a reminder of how often we're beaten down by the enemy. So, let's begin in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. Once again, we're looking at texts that are reminding us that Christ's work is meant to bring unity in the body. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 12. And he's speaking to Gentiles here. He says, Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and stranger to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So Paul basically says, remember who you were. Remember how you were separated from God, but now you've been brought close. So what would the lie be? The lie would be, Forget that you were sinners saved by grace. You're good. You're, you're righteous. No need to be thankful that you've been shown mercy. You've been right the whole time. Because the devil knows if you're right, then the main job you'll do is show people how they're wrong. And if that's what the church becomes, well then, that'll be pretty good. And then he says in verse 14, speaking of Christ, he says, for He Himself is our peace. Christ Himself is our peace. Who has made us both one, 
Jew and Gentile, He's made us one. And has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. What would the opposite of that be? Let no peace reign. Work to avoid oneness at all cost. If Christ died to bring oneness, fight it at every point. And the fundamental way to do that is make sure grudges are held. Lists of wrongs are kept. Let's look at verse 15. So he's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and commandments expressed in ordinances. What's the opposite of that? Don't let the law be abolished. You write law. You write it. Forget the Gospel. And here's how it comes practically. If I've had a dollar for every time I've heard this or thought this, you know what? I've had it up to here. If he does this one more time, then that statement right there, what is that? That's law. There's no marriage that can live underneath a husband and wife writing law for each other. I've been hurt this much. Therefore, here's the law that's being written. And what hope do you feel if you're on the other side of that? You know you're a sinner, right? You're going to break that law and the wrath that's promised in that law writing. Well, you might as well give up now. Right? You see all the pressure is taken off of a marriage that remembers the Gospel? That the law has been abolished? And then he says, that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. He might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Incredible promise right there. He's going to unite Jew and Gentile, and He's going to unite Jew and Gentile then to God. The work of Christ. The opposite would be, forget the cross, Forget forgiveness. Forget Christ. Let there be no oneness with God. Even if they're saved, keep them in unrepentant sin for a long time. Then there will be relational separation. Where there's relational separation, they won't be praying, they won't be reading the Word. We can pound them. Right? Right? Guilt must reign over a clear conscience. We must always be rekindling hostility. This would be the opposite. And then he says this in verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Make sure no peace is preached. Keep them fighting to the degree that all they're ever doing is looking in and feeling sorry for themselves. Make sure that peace is not preached out there. Fundamentally, get the church to quit making disciples. Quit proclaiming hope in a hopeless world. Alienate them from each other. All right, now look at Ephesians chapter 4. Beginning in verse 1, we'll look at verses 1 through 3 here. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So this, this is practically live out now, your calling. With all humility 
and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The opposite would be this. Your walk doesn't matter. No need to be urgent. If you're going to walk, walk in pride. Don't walk in humility. Whatever you do, don't be weak and be gentle with one another. Don't do that. In fact, be brash in your pride. Don't wimp out in the name of patience, but rather demand instant change. Demand perfection. Don't be patient with one another, whatever you do. Be eager to maintain self-interest. And make sure you do that with suspicion. That would be the opposite of eager to maintain the unity in the bond of peace. How about Ephesians 4.11? And He gave apostles. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What would the opposite of that be? You have this list of gifts given to the church. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. I suppose the opposite of that would be you want to know where the trouble is, is you can never trust the leadership. You can never trust the leadership. They're not a gift. They're going to tear you down. I'm sorry, that was a hard one for me to say because that seems self preserving but I hope you don't I hope you seek my well-being and love is what I hope which means you might need to have tough conversations with me I realize that but Paul says that leadership is a gift to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. The lie to that would be ministry isn't your responsibility. You know, I relate to the church as what I can get from it. I'm not going there to be equipped to then fulfill the ministry God's given me, especially if the ministry is defined by building up the body of Christ. So the lie would be, it's not my responsibility. The lie would be, why don't you critically tear down the body? Maturity's never coming anyway. You ever thought that? How many of you have thought about Sovereign Grace Church as a church that can mature to greater and greater maturity, and greater and greater love, so that ten years from now, though not perfect, this body is more mature. The marriages in this body are more mature. Do you believe that? Because we would, honest, it would be sinful, sinfully cynical to not believe that. Because this is the purpose of the church. This is what Paul says we're called to, to have happen. And that's exciting to me. 
Because the way to get there is repentance. It's the one thing you can do. To humbling yourself and coming to Christ for grace. And then verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. The lie would be you won't be tossed around. You're secure. You've done a lot of study on your own. You don't need the body. That would be the lie. And then he says in verse 15, rather, speaking truth and love, we are to grow up into every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. If you are going to speak the truth, speak it brashly. You know, something that I've discovered as just reading through the New Testament, uh, sometimes lies we believe seems so true. Like, for example, one of the important aspects of a Christian is that we speak boldly. And, and that's just held as like this thing that's obviously true. Well, it's surprised me, as Paul's been talking to the Ephesian church, he actually continues to say, speak humbly, and he continues to say, speak gently to one another and patiently to one another. And you want to know when the boldness texts come up? Almost always they come up when a Christian is facing potential persecution in the world for proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul prays for boldness that he would speak as he ought to speak. You won't see the Apostle Paul saying, make sure the way you bring unity in the church is to speak boldly to one another. Yes, you're to speak the truth in love. But you're to be patient. You're to be humble. You're to see the log in your own eye. And it's important for us to remember, yes, we're to have courage and to be willingly take lumps for the truth of the gospel, but with one another, you're going to grow slow. And so are your brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we need to have wisdom and patience and care and gentleness when we speak to one another. You know, I was thinking of, okay, how would I argue against that? Remember when Paul... Uh, approached Peter to his face, it said. He said he was walking contrary to the Gospel when, when he left the Gentiles, when the Jews showed up. Here you have a leader of the church publicly doing something wrong. And, and, and Paul boldly, in a sense, and to his face comes to him. That's true. But let's not read that scenario into every one of our relationships with each other. Okay, and then uh, Ephesians chapter 5, this is the last one, verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. The lie there would be, you already know the will of the Lord. Why don't you just relax? Peace time. And then he says, verse 18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Why there might be this. Why don't you have a little wine? Okay, a little bit more. 
you need to unwind. It's a gift for you, and it's for this very purpose. Plus, it's sophisticated. Why don't you have a little more wine? And why do you need to be worried about being filled by the Spirit anyways? Aren't I filled by the Spirit when I trusted in Christ? Well, he's not talking about that, is he? Right? Going to earthly substitutes rather than to Christ. Remember when we looked at this text? Drunkenness opens the door because the days are evil, opens the door for the demonic work within our lives. Right? Why would you roll out the red carpet to Satan? And then he says, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God, to the name, uh, or everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The lie there would be, do you really think you need to sing with the saints? And do you really think they need to hear you worship with your mouth? What do you think of that? When you come here on a Sunday morning, are you thinking of this thinking, they need to hear me sing? Now that's hard for me to believe when I come here, I'm honest. But I actually believe that if I stand here and I can't sing the truth of God's words to those people over there that are looking at me, they better be struggling with that. Because I need to sing to you and you need to sing to me because we forget and we're called to come together and worship. I don't care what your voice sounds like, it can't be worse than mine. I promise you, all my girls will attest to that. And then the other lie would be, give thanks for what? Look at my life. Look at how I've been ripped off. Right? And then it ends with, in verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. The lie there would be, don't willingly put your life under these people. Don't you know who they are? You must protect yourself from them. And that can feel so normal and true. But this is what God has called us to. If I was going to summarize all that, that's a lot, it would be these five points. Rapid fire here. There is no hope for unity and peace. I think a lot of people just give up on it. They give up on it in their marriage. They give up on it in the church. The second lie would be this. The church is a foolish idea all the way from the leadership down to every part of it. Just not believe in what Christ has decided to do. The third lie would be this. They don't have need of you anyway. The fourth lie would be this. You could do better on your own. And then the last lie is this. Wait until next week. Then you can lean into the body. You're too busy this week. No. There's a battle to keep us from worshiping with one another. There's a battle to keep us from repenting. Do you see Him working against you? Do you see Him using you to bring division in your relationships. Now listen to me. I'm serious. Do you see Satan using you to bring division in your relationships? Because if you don't, you're blind. You're one of these special ones that are, can be unaffected by the enemy. And if he can use even believers to divide believers. Then all of us ought to be willing to look in and see what part of our own life needs to change. And here's the good news. When you look in, you can repent. You can call it what it is. And then you can look at your Savior. Because that's our only hope. That our only hope is not saying, I'm good. There's none that is good. No, not one. But here's what Christ has done. 1 John 3.8 says, 
The devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. How did he do that? Colossians 2.13 And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Jesus destroyed the power of Satan when He died in your place on the cross. Satan can come to you and say, look at your sin. And you can say, yep, it's terrible. But I'm trusting in Christ. I'm repenting. Now what you got? Well, he's got nothing at that point. Because Christ rose from the dead. And if you're here today, you may have come in here feeling like you're a pretty good person. The Bible says there's no one that's good. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Gospel lays everyone flat. I don't care what sins you've done. If you will admit them, and look to Christ who died on the cross. And when He died, what did He say? He said, it is finished. Why? Because He made payment for your sin in full. Anyone who puts their trust in Christ can be reconciled to God. And if that happens to you, you can begin to be reconciled to one another in your relationship. One last passage. Hebrews 2.14 since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that's us, He Himself likewise partook of the same things. That's Christmas where Jesus takes on human flesh, right? In the Incarnation. That through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Jesus took on human form to go to the cross to destroy death and division. And bring life. And then, it, and then he says, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery, slavery. For surely it is not angels he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of His people. Here's what propitiation is. Propitiation is every sinner has the wrath of God hanging over their head because of their sin. And Jesus Christ comes in as a high priest, a mediator. And Jesus Christ swallows up the wrath you deserve for your sin. That's what it means He makes propitiation on your behalf. Which means... God is no longer against you. You're reconciled. You're made a child of God. You're given the Holy Spirit. For because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted.